0: This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and today we're talking about the tamarisk beetles and the role they play in reshaping Colorado River riparian zones. It's a good show. Stay with us.
1: Um, I think it's really significant that we have this huge, for one, we have this huge amount of tamarisk across the West that that we can't remove. You know, it's just too big of a job to try to get rid of it all. And even dead, it performs some ecological functions. You know, it's doing something. And so, and, and we can't afford to do that ourselves. So let's leave it alone.
0: Today on Science Moab, we are speaking with Tim Graham. Tim has lived and worked in the Moab area for decades and has monitored the impacts of the tamarisk beetle, a biological or biocontrol that was released to reduce the amount of invasive tamarisk that occur in the waterways across the Southwest. We touch on the history of testing and releasing the tamarisk beetle, how the beetle has done with controlling tamarisk along our rivers, and why the dead tamarisk we are now often seeing serves an important ecological function for our riparian areas. We begin our interview with Tim explaining the research behind choosing the tamarisk beetle as a biological control for tamarisk.
1: Biological control research on tamarisk has been going on for decades. I actually got started in the government partly because of tamarisk, and so in 1984, They were already doing biological control research on tamarisk, and I don't know, they tested over 400 species of tamarisk feeders, settled on what they thought at the time was one species of beetle, and now it's been split into six more or less geographically arranged species. The species here is called Diarabda carinulata. Populations that we have came from northern China and Kazakhstan at about 40 degrees latitude, which is important part of the story because at different latitudes, the different species and even probably the same species um, have different life histories based on photo period and when winter comes. The beetles in Moab came from a release initially uh, around Delta, Utah. That was one of the first free releases in the program, I think 2000 or 2001, something like that. By 2004, their impact on most of those releases um, was, was quite significant.
0: Their impact on on the, tam- the on
1: Yeah, The populations had grown to the point where, at least here, I don't know if they did this in other states, but APHIS, Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, is the USDA Department of Agriculture agency that was overseeing the releases, they put out a call to county weed supervisors. Anybody that wanted to come get tamarisk beetles could come out and collect them and and take them back and turn them loose. And I'm not real clear on the official process of that, but in Grand County, the weed supervisor, Tim Higgs, went over, got a bunch of beetles, and And he came back and he did something that was pretty smart. He didn't just scatter them around. He put them in three different places in relatively high concentrations. And that was nice for a couple of reasons. One, because you didn't have to try to track them all over the county right away. And you could watch how they spread. And also, the beetle does best in high concentrations, high densities. And they actually emit a pheromone, a chemical that attracts other beetles called an aggregation pheromone. And so when he put them out in, in high densities, they were able to mate and feed more effectively than if they'd just been tossed out of the truck here willy-nilly sort of. So Grand County got beetles to begin with in 2004.
0: And based on those initial three spots that they put the beetles out, how prevalent are beetles around Grand Canyon now?
1: Anywhere that you can find a tamarisk, you will find that, that there's evidence that beetles have been chewing on it. So they are, um, as far as we can tell, everywhere the tamarisk can grow. There may be some higher elevations um, going up the canyons in the book cliffs, for instance. Where there might be tamarisk and the beetles aren't there, but we haven't seen those. So, isolated stock ponds on the Cisco Desert, all along the rivers, the wash bottoms, the tamarisk has been defoliated more than once and um, the beetles are having a significant impact, I think.
0: Do we have a, an estimate of just like the numbers or biomass or just general uh, amount uh, of beetles that exist now uh, in this area?
1: No. Um, I do beetle counting, uh, beetle monitoring, um, currently about eight times a year. We have sentinel trees, so I go to 60 different stations in the county and count the beetles that I see in 15 seconds. So we have an index, and that index goes up and down from survey to survey and year to year. But trying to extrapolate that, I think, is probably not worth it the trouble. The index gives you a sense, but it isn't really a census or even a statistical survey of population abundance. It it gives us an idea of what's going on. But because you could walk up to that tree today and count and you'd get one number, you could walk up there tomorrow and a lot of the adults may have left or more may have shown up. And so the whole thing is so dynamic that it's um, trying to get those little snapshots in time is not real accurate in terms of total population.
0: How do you do these beetle count surveys? Can you describe the process? Well,
1: so when uh, Tim first released the beetles for 2004 and five, they did basically just subjective surveys, took some pictures around the areas where they'd been released, and you could see browning even by 2005. Um, there were small patches. 2006, they'd expanded more And in 2007, he hired Wright Robinson, and they started quantitatively monitoring the beetle using this 15-second survey method. So um, they established, at that time, the beetles were mostly along the Potash Road. Two of the releases were were along the Potash Road, and then there was one up on the Colorado up by Dewey Bridge. And so they were doing, just for ease, every other milepost every other mile marker they would go and and they'd pick a tree that was near that post and they would walk up to it and start the clock and start counting and then so they count the number of adults and they count the number of larvae that they see and then note whether there are eggs sometimes you can especially early on you could see lots of egg clusters and so um, you could actually get 15 second counts of egg clusters as well now they're more scattered and so i just make a note of them and then you estimate the percent of the canopy that's green and that's a really tricky thing to do because all of it that's green is green and so that's a hundred percent but that's not what you're interested in you're interested in how much of the trees canopy um, and we try to even now, to go back and estimate what that whole canopy was before the beetle was introduced. And so so you might look at a tree and, and see 5% canopy that's green, or you might see 80%, depending on the tree and where it is and so on.
0: You mentioned that the numbers vary and that the beetles are really dynamic. What's controlling that variation and that dynamism?
1: Well, like all invertebrates, they're Ectotherms, so their body temperature and their metabolic rates are controlled by external temperature. So, if you have a cool spring, then they're slower to come out. They may have used more of the energy reserves that they took in in the fall, and so they may not be in as good a shape when they come out. So, they may not lay as many eggs, or the eggs may not have as as much food store for the hatching larvae as in other years. And then equally high temperatures increase their metabolic rate, and so they need to feed more, they're more active. If they're eating more, then maybe they're accumulating more reserves. That second reproductive effort can provide a new flush that's more than in a cooler, wetter year or something like that. And we see that a couple of years in particular have been significant that way. The winter of 2010-11 was a uh, long kind of cool wet winter the tamarisk leafed out and had maybe a little bit longer time before the beetles really built up came out and started feeding on it and they also had plenty of water it was a fairly high flow year along the rivers and so there was a lot of tamarisk foliage out but the beetle population was actually pretty high at that point and so once they got started then they really started to munch down on the tamarisk and they went through the season We think, and this is all speculation, we didn't do dissections to see if these guys had lots of energy reserves at the end of the season or not. But based on our observations, this is what we think happened. Um, They went into the fall with plenty of reserves, they had lots of food, they had pretty much defoliated the trees, but they went into the winter in pretty good shape. And then that 2011 12 year, the winter was warm, short, and dry. So the beetles came out early, the tamarins came out a little bit water-stressed because the rivers were low. I don't think we got a peak on the river, on the Colorado, until summer monsoons. And so it was like August, September before the maximum flow for the year was hit. So the trees were hurting, lots of beetles, probably like I said, came out with extra reserves so they were able to lay more eggs, better conditioned eggs. So the population built up, and by the end of that year, they had really eaten themselves out of home. And so they went into that 2012-13 winter probably somewhat stressed. They didn't have a lot of reserves, and they were scattered around. So in the next year when they did come out, it was probably harder for them to find each other and mate successfully. And so 2013 was the beginning of a collapse of the population. So it crashed. 2014 and 2015, it was really low. Unfortunately, we had reduced the number of surveys during that same period, and so we don't have exactly comparable data. But in 2012, I think we had a total of 5,000 beetles, somewhere around there. In the surveys that I counted over the course, or actually Wright was doing that in 2012, in 2014, I counted a total of 173 beetles and many fewer surveys, but the number of zeros out there was pretty phenomenal. In 2015, it wasn't much better. 2016, they started to come back. 2017, they increased again. I've done two surveys so far this year. Um, the first survey, there were twice as many beetles in that first survey for the same number of sites as last year, as I saw last year in that first survey. So looks like the population will increase again this year and the tamarisk will take another hit.
0: What are the beetles actually doing to the tamarisk?
1: The way they feed is, is they scrape the epidermis, basically the skin of the leaves, and they'll do this on the small branches too. And then they lap up the juice in the cells. So they're actually killing the leaves of the tree, which are the photosynthetic organs. And so the tree can't capture carbon and grow. Tamarisk put a lot of, of reserve photosynthetic product into their roots. And then they use that to put out new growth in the spring and also in the face of herbivory. They can tap those reserves and put out new leaves and then start to grow again. The beetles, they can actually girdle those small stems, so they can kill more than just the biomass that they're consuming. And they do a fair amount of that. Twigs is about maybe two to three uh, millimeters in diameter and smaller. Um, They can girdle those out. So you might have 15 to 25 centimeters of the end of the twig that gets killed by the beetles and the larva and the adults all feed the same way so they're all feeding on the same stuff Um, most of the consumption comes from larva so the adults feed they'll feed in a place mate lay eggs and then they leave so they're not eating the food that their larvae are going to need they can fly away the larva can't and then the larvae hatch out and each female can lay oh 30 to 100 eggs as a result of anyone mating and so they Uh, leave a lot of larvae there, and the larvae can really defoliate the tree pretty quickly.
0: How has the biocontrol been working? Do we see a reduction overall in tamarisk?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty significant. I think that tamarisk is no longer a dominant part of the system. If you look along the rivers in particular, there's very little tamarisk up against the river anymore. The willows have taken over that, that shoreline. If you look at aerial photos of islands, even as early as 2009, you could see these brown centers where the tamarisk had stabilized a sandbar and gotten established there. And then since then, the willows have taken over. And so you go out in June or July and and look down and you'll see these brown or gray Tamarisk centers surrounded by green of willow and New Mexico privet and so on. In some cases, um, other introduced plants like Russian olive are increasing as well. But um, as far as tamarisk control goes, the beetle has done an excellent job.
0: Do you think it's possible that we might see the complete loss of tamarisk?
1: I don't think they'll ever completely eliminate it, they don't in their native habitat. One of the things I've tried to do a little bit, I need to try more, but maybe I'll just have to go to Kazakhstan, is to learn more about what that dynamic is. There was incredible amount, an incredible amount of research into the feeding habits of this beetle and whether it would eat other things or not, but they didn't do anything else with the ecology, and so they turned them loose and didn't know, you know, that maybe they had tamarisk species specific preferences, maybe they needed particular photo periods. What is it that allows the tamarisk and the beetle to coexist in Kazakhstan? And I haven't seen a lot of literature on the beetle in its native habitat. I'm really curious to see, but I think what will happen is we'll have sort of this hide-and-seek kind of process where tamarisk will be found in a few places or sparsely in the in the riparian stands and then the uh, beetle will come in and defoliate that knock it back but in the meantime tamarisk is getting established someplace else so um that's that's my guess of how things are going to go
0: can you um briefly describe how they did make sure that the tamarisk would never The tamarisk beetle, sorry, would never turn around and eat all the willow (laughs) along the river.
1: (laughs) Well, so this family, the chrysomelids, are the leaf-feeding beetles. And there are many, many species that are host-specific to one species or maybe to a genus or part of a genus. And so that's what they started with, was looking at what things in the native habitat appear to be feeding only on on tamarisk and not on other things and then they tested them and so they I don't know I think every species that that grows in the west (laughs) you know are close to it and there are two parts one will they eat it Um, and if they eat it that may or may not be a disaster but can they carry out their life cycle on them and if they can do that then they were rejected immediately and even species that were pretty specific but occasionally would nibble on something else those were were rejected And the cool thing about Tamarisk is that, and what makes it a problem, is that its chemistry is so completely different from anything that's found in North America. When an herbivore adapts specifically to a species like that or a genus like that, then it has its whole digestive system is keyed to dealing with the chemicals that that plant produces. And so you have this chemistry set and, you know, you want to build an enzyme that will digest the anti-herbivore chemicals of Tamarisk, well you've got the the building blocks for that. You have the the chemicals that you need, you have the enzymes that can put those chemicals together, but then you're faced with cottonwood or greasewood or even an exotic like cheatgrass and you don't have the building blocks. And so, to get at those building blocks requires a lot of evolutionary steps, and they're not little incremental steps. They're big jumps, like jumping off a two-story building instead of climbing down the stairs. And And so the chance that the beetles will evolve the ability to feed on native plants is, is, I think, quite minuscule.
0: Even with their large number of offspring and their quick generation cycle yeah. is still very rare.
1: Yeah, because, you know, if they were testing other plants, then you might find an individual that had something that could digest some of that stuff. But in general, they're so they're keyed to finding food based on the volatile chemicals that the tamarisk gives off, and then they're keyed to digesting the biomass that the tamarisk produces, it's, it's just unlikely that, that you would get enough mutations all at once that, that the beetle could, could make that jump. If it was, and we see this in biological control a lot where they'll introduce something, there's a native species in the same genus or maybe in a closely related part of the family, the control insect can jump to a related species that's fairly closely related. But tamarisk is the only only member of its family that's in North America.
0: You mentioned the unique chemistry of tamarisk. I was wondering, because of that unique chemistry, if we're seeing impacts of the tamarisk that's going to outlive the large amount of tamarisk biomass.
1: Mm -hmm. Possible. The tamarisk can deal with saltier water than most native plants especially in riparian areas that that are naturally saline but they'll take that that salty water in and then separate the salts and pump them out on the leaves and that seems to be the the biggest impact is increasing the salinity of the surface soil from the litter that falls
0: and then when the tamarisk actually dies i mean i i've noticed them as just kind of hulking hulking husks of trees out. (laughs) I mean, are they, what's, what's the process after it's defoliated?
1: Well, so for one, the, when it's dead is not always obvious. You can see the bark popping off that branch is dead. But again, early in my career, I was doing tamarisk Control in Horseshoe Canyon. And there had been a control effort about seven years before that with big trees, and we were cutting the seedlings that had come up in the interim. But a lot of these stumps, there was no evidence of any, any new re-sprouting. And we left, and we came back about a month later after a flash flood, and there were parts of the, of the cut stumps that were exposed. The flash flood had washed the sediment away, and they had sprouts on them. So after seven years with no evidence that, that we could see of growth, once that stem was exposed to the air and the light, then they put out new sprouts. So when people ask, how long does it take to kill a tamarisk? I just say, I don't know, but this branch is dead. <laughs> but um, I think it's really significant that we have this huge, for one, we have this huge amount of tamarisk across the West that, that we can't remove. You know, it's just too big of a job to try to get rid of it all. And even dead, it performs some ecological functions. So that three-dimensional structure, the architecture of the, of the stands, provide perches and, and hiding places for birds. Those birds are often feeding on native and sometimes non-native plants and carrying their seeds in their gut tract. And so they'll come land on a dead tamarisk, they'll defecate and now they've put seeds of plants that we might want, like squaw bush or New Mexico privet, and so they're revegetating for us and we don't have to do that. So keeping that structure is important. It also provides shelter for small mammals and uh, reptiles and amphibians that burrow in the in the ground. They're taking that salty litter that we talked about and turning it in to the deeper layers of soil so they're diluting the salt and churning seeds into the ground making it more amenable to having some plants come back so if you leave it there then I think there's a better chance for natural recruitment of plants into the system than if you cut it or burn it and a lot of people say well but it looks ugly but you know it's doing something and so and and we can't afford to do that ourselves so let's leave it alone.
0: You've done a lot of work studying insects. What do you like about them?
1: (laughs) Everything, pretty much. I don't know. People ask me, well, when did you think you were going to be a biologist? i would probably when I was two or something. I've always been fascinated with the outside and with life and stuff. I think I kind of maybe started um, heading towards insects when I was going to school up in Washington. I actually have... A bachelor's degree in marine ecology and looking at the diversity of invertebrates um, in the oceans was pretty amazing. It's um, really fascinating and also kind of confusing or confounding. We would have these, these species that we were trying to key out and the key would say, well, it has one hook on the hair on the end of its foot or it has two hooks, and they're found in the same grab sample in the mud. Is there an ecological difference there that would indicate that they should be different species, or, or is that something that some taxonomist just wanted to get another publication on? You know, it's, so those kinds of, of things in terms of the diversity of, of invertebrates is phenomenal. But like all of us, you know, some of us have brown hair, some of us have blonde hair, and, and some of us like broccoli, and some of us don't. Are those just individual differences that you see, or are they ecologically significant differences? And, and insects do pretty much everything but photosynthesize, so um, they're important parts of, of all the ecosystems.
0: And what do you enjoy about being a scientist? <laughs>
1: Um, well, the field work, field work is always fun. And being able to, like I might be out there focused on one thing, but being in the system allows me to to watch, not necessarily to learn how it works, but to see it working. And so over time, you get to see more, you know, changes, cyclic changes and, and non-cyclic changes in the system. I worked in Salt Creek down in Needles for uh, for five years. I was in there every May to September for about three weeks each month and then for the next three years just in June and September. But getting to see that place and know that place was really fun. And noticing things about, about the system. So more than just asking the questions and trying to to find answers. Um, But I also, I'm not necessarily really good at it, but I like playing with the numbers, playing with the data to try to get at those answers too.
0: Well, Tim, thank you so much for this interview. It's been so great to get to talk to you about this cool work that you're doing. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Theme music for our show is by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is provided by BYU's Charles Red Center for Western Studies. And the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.